Hello and welcome to Overthinking It's Recap of Season 4, Episode 8 of Game of Thrones, The Mountain and The Viper. I am the Fenzel, here to guide you through. Thanks for making us your second screen as you're watching the shows that you love best on TV, and our TV recap series continues. We've concluded Mad Men, of course, and Community, I believe, as well. Uh, but we're marching on, and there's going to be other shows going on as they premiere. Uh, if you're listening to us on iTunes, thanks and subscribe. We'd love to have you listen to the rest of these. Uh, but beyond, without further ado, we have a lot to get through to talk about this uh, just bone-chilling, uh, very punctuated episode of Game of Thrones. And as always, I like to ask each member of our panel. We've got a three-man panel here today, which I've been told is not quite enough for a, a fire squad, Ben. Is that what you called it, a fire team? Fire team, which a fire is team. half of a squad. A half of a squad. The smallest unit of military uh, people would be one more than what we have now. So we are running, we are in uncharted territory. I believe the French had a unit called Musketeers or something that was only three people or something like that. Uh, anyhow, uh, let me ask our wonderful panel, and I'll do it in alphabetical order. Uh, your Downton Abbey moment, as we call it, the moment, the conversation, the thing that is said, the thing that takes place in the episode that provides for you a basis of interpretation for all the other things that happen during the episode, if there's one. Or if not, if there's some other angle that you want to approach the episode from. I mean, the obvious thing would be start from the head crunch, but that's at the end, so maybe we don't start with it right away. I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We'll find out. Let's ask Ben Adams. How are, ben, uh, thank you for your military knowledge. Always appreciate it. Sure. And, and legit, of course, as always. So yeah, what was your... What was your mountain the viper moment for this episode so it's not really dialogue and so I, I can't i don't think i can count Arya's laugh though that was i think my favorite moment of the episode <laughs> but uh, my downton abbey dialogue i'm gonna take some low-hanging fruit here and, and take part of Tyrion's speech uh where he's talking about his his cousin orson and he, he says that he wasn't mindless he had his reasons and i like this this distinction that uh, between good reasons and just reasons in general. that we, You look at what he's doing and it looks like chaos, but clearly there's like some sort of guiding principle, even if it's not one that we would normally regard as, as rational or moral or whatever the case may be, because this episode was about a lot of that kind of judgment going on. And some of it, some of the reasons for the judgment was better than others. Um, you know, at the beginning, we have the, the actual kind of trial where there's actual witnesses and a seeming desire to determine some sort of truth with this, uh, the hearing of Lord Baelish. Um, and then, of course, we can contrast that with this trial by combat, which presumably has very little to do with the truth. But, you know, it's, not, it's also not mindless. It does have its reasons behind it. So I, I kind of like that as a way into the, all the different judgment we saw going on in this episode. Mm. And what, what, are the, what are the reasons behind the trial by combat? It, you know, I think it has something to do with, it's a way, I mean, the, the institution itself is probably designed as a way for knights who are really, really good at combat to get out of all of the bad stuff they do. Because, <laughs> so they, they're a big fan of this system. So I'm not sure the reasons are, are normally this kind of reason, but I can see why knights would be a big fan of this system, of having this option of being like, okay, well, I did that bad thing, but I demand trial by combat, so you better find somebody who can beat me. Fair enough, fair enough. So, John Parrish, what's your what's your big moment for this episode? Or not your big moment, but uh, your moment. What up? Uh, it's uh, is it? I haven't I haven't done this this conversational gambit before. So, is it okay to springboard off of one scene into the number of scenes throughout the episode which touch on this? Yeah, sure. I'm gonna, springboard. I'm gonna do that anyway. I'm gonna do yeah. that anyway. 
So right. the the moment for me to pick to pick an odd one, although it does it does recur in several scenes, is when Theon Greyjoy is sent as Theon Grey or excuse me, when Reek is sent masquerading as Theon Greyjoy to go to Moat Kaelin, which is currently being held by the Ironborn, and say, listen guys, if you surrender to the Boltons, they'll totally give you mercy. And the first guy's like, nah, screw that. And then he gets an axe in the head. The second guy's like, okay, you're sure we'll get mercy? And Theon's like, yeah, totally. And then immediate smash cut to <clears throat> that guy, staked through the shoulders, face ripped off, ribs splayed open, eye missing. <clears throat> and uh, Roos, uh, or Ramsay Snow, soon to become Ramsay Bolton, you know, sort of looks at the man as the camera pulls back and says, hey, he didn't really think we were going to give him mercy, did we? <clears throat> or something along those lines. I don't know the exact words. But the general the general thread throughout several of the key scenes in this episode is hope being tenuously offered when we have no reason to believe it'll be there and then immediately yanked back. So there's the uh, there's the Ironborn surrendering Moat Kaelin. There's uh, the Hound arriving at <clears throat> the Hound and Arya arriving at the Eyrie. There's uh, uh, Lord Mormont uh, confessing his his treason to Khaleesi, and of course there's the the the, the duel, the trial by combat, which ends the episode. But throughout the the recurring theme, the thread which links all of this together is you know there's. There's a hope which we have no reason to believe exists, but we're willing to offer, we're willing to give that level of vulnerability. We're willing to open ourselves that much and like, oh, we'll, we'll put our trust in your hands because we think it'll work out. And one time it does in the, in the trial of, uh, of Lord Baelish, but otherwise it's, it's completely dashed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that that was definitely related to what I was thinking about too. And I feel like there's a couple of different axes on which this operates, but this idea of there being a hope of something that happens and then having there be a, de a death specifically or like a failure or the death end of a relationship or the death of a person. The moment for me, uh, and John, I'd forgotten that you hadn't been on our uh, Game of Thrones recaps lately. We've missed you, man. It's uh, yeah, okay. always great to have you on these things. Good to be um, back. Yeah, definitely. Um, was at the very beginning of the episode. <clears throat> and to fill you in, uh, when we say the Downton Abbey moment, what that really it refers to our Downton Abbey recaps when there's usually some sort of side conversation about biscuits or somebody's plans for the day or someone's getting a hat or something, and they speak kind of portentously about this unrelated object in a way that very obviously reflects the rest of the episode. So we be like, yeah, yeah. And so... Yeah, so it's so transparent in a lot of the episodes of Downton Abbey. It happens like about a third of the way through that we've been using the term in this one. For me, it was the very beginning of the episode um, where there was a sequence of events where there was a woman who was burping a series of famous songs. Right, she would like make a series of burps, and then yes. someone would be like, "Oh, that's the Reigns of Castamere," and like, the "Oh, that's um, the Bear of the Fair." What was that? The only two songs in Westeros. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and so she's burping the songs and people are guessing. And then there's like a little bit of interstitial stuff where it's like someone is mad at Gilly because her baby was crying and whatever. And yeah, they're misunderstanding what it means for a baby to be making noise. But then they hear this hoot of an owl. And, they, and she goes like, oh, what? And she goes, what's that? And it's like, oh, it's an owl or whatever. And it's like, that's not what it is. Right? And that, that, that I think sets up it combines two of the things that I think were major driving themes. First, the one that John's talking about, which is this idea of like, oh, there's like a fun time and a happy time and there's hope and it's a harmless thing and there's good stuff that's happening. And it gets yanked out because what happens is it's the call of the wildlings to come into Moletown and kill everybody, right? And that's what's actually going to happen. Um, 
but it also combines the presence of narrativization and tradition, uh, which are also exist throughout this story, often as some way of underpinning this sense of hope, uh, this sense of justice, the sense of things being the way that they ought to be. Uh, also, this sense of people, yeah, like, you know, the, when the, everything from when Theon's talking about how honor should be something that people pay attention to, or when Sansa tells her own personal story about what happened as a way of getting out of the punishment that might be visited upon Peter Baelish. People use stories, histories, traditions throughout here in as part of this kind of like ascent and break that happens. Um, but no, the Owl Hoot, which you think might be some other song that's happening, isn't a song, it's death and it's coming. Right, and so this recalls to me the name of the episode, the, the Mountain and the Viper, which is a romanticized way of talking about the fight that happens at the end, uh, which could be, a, which starts with an invocation, right, like a divine invocation of all the gods in their presence, and, and has this great dramatic arc, and the story of Elia, and confess her name, right, and the, affirming the history of what happens, and ends with, you know, head splatter, and gore, right, and just like squashitude all over the place. Um... But yeah, I think I think there's definitely this pattern. It it, it felt pretty it felt pretty purposeful through a lot of yeah, the plots. Yeah, right? I mean the, the if if there's a statement to the episode at all, I mean to to talk to your point about the the invocation that begins the duel, and I guess we're gonna be talking about the duel because you know it's sort of the this it's sort of the centerpiece. It's sort of what everyone was going into the episode expecting to see. So I mean, why why not talk about it? There there's a there's a moment at the beginning of the duel when. Uh, the Meister, Meister Pycel, is giving these invocations to the gods. May you know, may the mother give him mercy. May the father, you know, bring him justice. May the the champion, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, uh, Lord Tywin, you know, the king's hand gives this sort of like gesture to the trumpeters off stage, like, all right, uh, second, you know, second round of trumpets. Let's let's wrap this up. He essentially goes like, cut it, cut it short. Uh, which is which I guess sort of a statement of how little you're willing to stand on ceremony, how little you're willing to take ceremony and oath and honor seriously. Uh, it shows up with the Ironborn because, you know, Ramsay Snow gives his word that if they, if they surrender, they'll be treated fairly. And not only does he not fulfill that end of the bargain, he treats them particularly unfairly, above and beyond the, the, the bare tenets of breaking his word. Uh, we see, we see obviously that, you know, that, obeisance to the gods being d diminished simply because for Lord Tywin, this isn't about doing justice. This is about getting Tyrion off the stage. It's like, let's, let's get rid of him. Let's dispose of him in the easiest way possible. And of course there's the, you know, there's Mount, there's the mountains way of uh, finishing uh, Prince Oberyn Martell and that th there's Oberyn sort of has a story in his mind about how this is supposed to play out. And it's going pretty close to that up to the point where mountain knocks him on his ass in that, and of course, the mountain isn't. The mountain doesn't know how this story is supposed to play out. He's not. He's not honoring the tradition either. Uh, and you know, he he succeeds for it. Ramsay Snow succeeds for it. Lord Tywin succeeds for it. So the extent to which you're willing to throw aside tradition and honor and the narrative that everyone recognizes is the extent to which you're going to succeed. Hmm. Yeah, and of course, you know, Tywin is the guy who says the man who. Cost to call himself who, the man who says I'm the king is no king. Uh, go into the Twitters for a second. Uh, Snitty, our own our own Mr. Snitkoff, uh, poses. Uh, I couldn't pin a scene on it, but it struck me, perhaps obviously, that this episode was about names 
and titles. That kind of dovetails with what you were talking about, right, John? People's names and titles having to do with circumstance, pomp and circumstance, and ceremony. A little uh, bit. I mean, the big the big change, <clears throat> the big change outside of uh, you know the big change in the north is Ramsey Bolton, uh, Ramsey Snow being entitled Ramsey Bolton, being officially made the the son and heir of Lord Bolton. So he's now he's now the heir to the north, and for and. I, I guess I'm willing to discuss this a little because no matter what happens in the books, the show has demonstrated a willingness to deviate somewhat in that this should probably put us all a little bit ill at ease given that we know what Ramsey Bolton now is capable of and he's now one, you know, well-placed longbow shot away from becoming like the Warden of the North and therefore sort of the, the unquestioned ruler of the North. So... This is this is a tricky bit of business, but it, it's something he takes seriously. It's something that penetrates a shell which we thought was cynical and sociopathic. He seems very much touched by that level of trust from his uh, from his father. Yeah, it, it definitely says something about the comfort that people take in these names and titles and backstories and circumstance and religious ceremony and ritual that we go to the most just abjectly morally bankrupt people that we've run into. I mean, in terms of the show, and again, we don't want to give spoilers to people who've, who've uh, not watched, who've not read the books. We don't want to sort of say things that happen in the future, but we can comment on how things are generally going pretty, pretty evenly and even. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fair to say things aren't going well for people we like. Yeah, that is very true. That is very true. But yeah, but it's like um, the Boltons are even worse in the show than they are in the books. Uh, they show because they show a lot more of what Ramsey does to Theon, rather than describe it off screen. So you see a lot more of how horrible he is for a lot longer. Um, but yeah, you go to the most morally bankrupt people in the show, and you you show them how happy. And how pleased not only they are, but you are in watching them. Like, oh, that's kind of nice. Like, I kind of feel nice for Ramsey that he got that. <laughs> Even though he's like a horrible, terrible human being and should suffer in the seven hells and all that stuff, right? So if it does that for him, imagine what it does for everybody else. Uh, you know, the comfort that everybody takes in like, you know, Ilya Avdor, Ilya Martel. You know, do, do, you know, do you know who I am? Some dead man, right? Like, well, that's my name is important and it stands against that. Go ahead. So there's another interesting invocation of title when uh, Baelish is talking to the other lords of the Vale, and they ask him who would he have them back, and he responds very triumphantly, Lord uh, Rob, Robin uh, Robin Arryn, Lord of the Vale, and like that's another way of saying like you should back the name of the Arryns because Robin is a is a non-person like Robin is less than useless at this point. I mean maybe you know, the whole idea is oh we're going to get him out and make him a better lord you know, because he's going to learn the country and learn how to use a sword. But at this point, what Baelish is really saying is, like, you just need to get behind this title and this name and start looking out for, for this title, and we'll, we'll figure out the rest from there. Of course, what they don't know is what he's really saying is, you should get behind me because I control Robin, but he's good like that. So. Yeah, definitely. What do you guys think of Sansa in this episode? Sansa and her, uh, her, her scheming and her transformation and her trip to Hot Topic, as I've heard described on the internet. <laughs> one, thing, uh, one thing I didn't see adequately called attention to is, uh, for one thing, it's, it's, it's a wonderful demonstration of Sansa's final willingness to play the game, her final willingness to not just lie, but use the truth and deceit in proper, deliberate measure, such as to manipulate people. Like a, a willingness to present a face other than her most obvious face in order to get what she wants. And that's sort of like 
King's Landing 101, if you will, and she's finally mastering it. So I saw a lot of people on Twitter and other places discussing, you know, what that does for her stance or what that does for her stake in the Eerie, what that does for her stake in the uh, in the Vale. But I think it was also sort of meant as a gesture to Lord Baelish in that as soon as she says, I'm sorry, Lord Baelish, I have to tell the truth, you get that you get that immediate heart-stopping sense of, oh, she's going to rat on him and he's going to go out the moon door. And then once we finally realize what her story is, you get the impression that was a gesture to him as much as to the other lords and ladies of the Vale saying, you know, saying, I had your life in my hands and I gave it back to you. Do we understand each other? <laughs> yeah, no uh, doubt. Which is, which is what I took from it. Uh, especially given her comment near the very end when she's, uh, when she's in bed, uh, when she's in bed stitching something, doing embroidery like she always does, and Lord Baelish comes in and has that line about, you know, what what I want, and uh, and she says something like very direct back to him, like what what do you want, or some, or, or oh, something. Oh, I know like you that. want. I know or, what you I know, want. Yeah. I know what you. Yes, thank you. I know what you want. Which, you know, there's even given the relative age and weirdness of the two, there's no context in which a woman sitting on her bed says that to a man who's expressed interest in her that isn't meant to be interpreted. Like, we're meant to interpret that in a certain way. And whether Baelish interprets it that way or whether he realizes that she's trying to game him, it's, I mean, it's its very savvy. Like, she's, she's starting to see herself more as other people see her and is taking an active role in shaping how other people see her. And that's, uh, it's a sign of self-awareness, for one thing. It's also a sign of political savvy. Ben, what'd you think about the the veil happenings? I, I like that scene as well, where she's uh, she's doing the the sewing. That was a really good bit of acting by uh, by Sophie Turner, the uh, the actress. And it was, I, I think you're right that when she says, "I know what you want," there's sexual overtones. But I think there's more. I think she's now sophisticated enough to know that that means more than just romance. That this isn't just like she's not like any other fourteen year old telling of, or however old she is in the series now. She's not like any other teenager saying, oh, I know all you boys want is sex. She knows that there are, because she is the last surviving Stark, as far as she knows, like, she knows there are political overtones, and that, like, that is an important, like, she also knows that he wants other things, that he wants to be powerful, that he wants to be respected, and all that. She, she's intimating that she's now, as you say, kind of at a higher level of the game. Um, and she actually played it pretty well. For her first move, she, she's doing pretty well. And I thought that there was an interesting contrast because this is the, the, I think the closest we've ever seen the Stark daughters together since Ned Stark died. Um, he's Arya Stark is, you know, at the knocking on the door to the veil and Sansa's already, you know, up there. So they're not too far apart. Um, but they're playing in very different worlds. Sansa's getting ready to, to enter the world of kind of court politics. And Arya is clearly, she, she's training to be a real killer. Uh, like yeah. she told the Hound isn't. Let's talk a little more about that laugh, which you commented on, Ben, as your your favorite part of the episode. Because I think I think that because that laugh is Arya's last it's the last line in the scene, and it's Arya's last line in the scene. And in that episode, what do you what do you think that signifies, both from her character and I guess as a as a comment on the episode, the series as a whole? So I mean, as far as her first, I'll answer your questions out of order. I mean, as far as the series as a whole, this is kind of the most one of the most self-aware, this is kind of going back to like season one Tyrion, who, who there's a character on screen who is kind of 
not breaking the fourth wall, but is kind of aware of the ridiculousness of what's going on and the, the kind of just existential horror of, of what's happening. Tyrion, I feel like it's kind of gotten away from that. He's kind of playing the game a little more. But in season one, he was always kind of the, um, the not the jester, but he was the one making the, the little asides, just commenting on the, the silliness of, of the proceedings. And this is Arya, like, finally breaking down and just recognizing that, like, this world is ridiculous, that, like, they fought through hell on earth to get to her last surviving relative, and she died three days before they arrived there. <laughs> like, literally days before, you know, out of time. Uh, they're, they're, now, now they're stuck in this canyon with arrows pointed at them, uh, subject to who knows what from now. And so I think this is just her, like, cracking and realizing that, like, you know, this is all a farce. And so as far as her character, I think that it's both signaling to us that there's this kind of break with the normal way we're treating uh, the, the goings-on uh, by realizing that it's kind of funny. And it's also her kind of making that that step into um, kind of accepting that, you know, all, what was the line from the, the episode that there's nothing after death, it's just death, or there's nothing, nothing is just nothing? Yeah, something like that. So one one interpretation, I mean, given the... I guess given the way in which she laughs and the context in which she's laughing, and you described it very well, Ben, as sort of a, uh, a break from the reality that she's in, uh, do you think this is literally a break from reality for her? Like, do you think she's starting to go a little mad? And the only reason I say this is because we've shown, we've shown her going from like a, you know, somewhat disciplined but tomboyish but, you know, otherwise fairly level-headed girl to someone who takes pleasure in killing people. Like, she relishes it at this point, which is not, I mean, we all cheer for it because, you know, woo, badass, go Arya, you know, exhibit agency and take a role in your own destiny. But it's also, it's also meant to be disturbing. Like, it's a, it's a loss of innocence in one very obvious way. And it's, you know, she's, she's showing relish in other people's death. So do you think this, this laugh on her part is, liter- is a signifier, I guess, of a literal break from reality that she's starting to go mad at this point and that hope has been offered to her and denied to her in such equal and intermittent measure that she's finally going to be like, whoop, time to murder. <laughs> I, th- I think it might be kind of embracing that. Cause as you said, I mean, she was already on this slide into enjoying killing people. So it's not like this is like a new thing that she, she's all of a sudden, this is going to turn her into a sadist or something. Um, but I think it, it may be like, she's recognizing that this is truly the path that she's on because there's like, there's a brighter timeline, you know, that the dice came out differently in another world and they got there four days before and she was ransomed. And like, there's a different path where she, her life starts to look a lot more like uh, Sansa's life where she ends up, you know, as part of court politics and marrying some guy for political gain. And that there's this whole other world where that's Arya's future. And then 20 years from now, her killing days are kind of like a distant memory of like something that happened once upon a time. But, like, this laugh is her recognizing that, like, no, that is her path now. Like, that's the rest of her life is going to be further and further down this path. Um, and she's not, all, she's not upset about it. She's laughing about it. Um, but I think she, there's still, like, this little part of her that was waiting to, to go back to her old life, and it's, it's gone now. Yeah. It's interesting because, uh, you know, Arya, in the first season, right, Arya talks with Sirio about how there's only one god and it's death. Right, and now at this point, it seems like death is really Arya's god. You know, Arya is is really involved with death. When the Hound asks her what she enjoys doing, killing is pretty much the only thing she can come up with. Um, and I feel like there's in Arya's laugh, and also elsewhere in the episode, there's a fair amount of King Lear going on. 
right? Which is that if Arya's god is death, and when Arya's aunt deaths, when Arya's aunt dies, Arya laughs. That to me recalls the famous line from King Lear, uh, as, you know, as it goes, "As flies to wanton boys, we are to the gods. They kill us for their sport." Right? A very famous Shakespeare line, which is of course echoed in Tyrion's big speech in prison, which is again feels a lot like King Lear because it's about a guy in prison whose situations are really dire, who used to be wealthy, who's with like the last person that he feels like he loves, who he sort of personally didn't really get along with for a while, right? There's a lot of kind of like, there's like a little sort of Lear, Lear and Cordelia going along, although Jamie has better circumstances at the moment than Tyrion does. It doesn't necessarily feel that way in this episode. But yeah, this idea that, um, of, of this sort of uh, cosmic comedy of, of the gods kind of doing this for entertainment purposes. And I wonder whether... Uh, the way that um, that Oberyn's head at the end is like 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 crazy splattered gore uh, craziness is is meant to sort of say look at what a spectacle it is for this death this death is a big spectacle just like Arya laughs Arya laughs when her aunt dies you know you as the viewers of this also appreciate that the the killing that happens to Oberyn is something that might potentially be done for the twisted enjoyment of some sort of unseen deity. Um, well- Pete, you, you talk about this, and of course I think this is a, a natural, perhaps almost planned segue into Tyrion's monologue about his, uh, his uh, you know, mentally simple cousin, uh, which, Owen Lannister, Orwin, something like that, Orwin Lannister, who, you know, sat in the garden all day and smashed beetles, and Tyrion's obsession with this. And obviously he goes into this whole long monologue, which, you know, ends with not so much a definitive conclusion, but Tyrion's disbelief, you know, complete lack of understanding, and his dissatisfaction with his inability to understand. It's it's not so much that his simple cousin is smashing bugs in a garden that necessarily bothers him, and it's not it's not even, despite what he says, the bugs that are dying, the beetles that are dying that necessarily bothers him. What bothers him is that he can't understand it, that he can't he can't come up with an answer to it, and now, on the verge of death, on the verge of, you know, what he thinks is his likely sentence for execution, he still doesn't have an answer, and he's going to go to his grave not knowing. So there are a couple interesting interpretations of that. Uh, obviously, Pete, I think it dovetails very much into what you're thinking, that, you know, the, there are creatures that are going to die miserably without knowing why uh, for no real reason other than... it doesn't even really entertain, but other than some blind idiot god feels compelled to do it. Uh, are there any other interpretations of that, do we think, especially in line with the, the themes of the episode and the series? Well, okay. Well, what other interpretations of why the idiot guy, the, the, the mentally handicapped guy, might be killing the Beatles, is what you're saying? Well, I, I, guess, I guess interpretations of why, I guess on a meta level, why this, why this monologue happens in the episode. Like, what, what are we going to understand better about the episode if we understand this speech and its place in it? Yeah, I think I think um, part of it is is there's there's the both sides of it, right? There's the side where Tyrion is stymied and frustrated because he doesn't understand why he's going to die, and he, the Beatles don't understand what's happening to them. And as Jamie brings up, people die all the time, all over the place, and we don't understand what happens to them. So there's that that half of it where it's about not understanding, but then there's also the half of it where this is a story that Tyrion is recounting to Jamie in an effort to understand. And I feel like the episode does not take for granted that this is a thing that we ought to intuitively understand in itself. This urge that people have to 
create stories and contextualize and repeat and have traditions, right? Like, why is Tyrion feel like compulsion around this and repetition around this? Why is that his response? Why is his response to seeing the beetle die to become fixated on it and to repeat his experience with it over and over again? Right? Like, like what is it about that? And again, there's not necessarily an answer, but it also echoes through other parts of the episode where people kind of relive um, past events, uh, right? And, and reiterate things that have happened in the past, dredge up old things, often sort of old unpleasant things. And it's like, well, why is this something that we keep doing to ourselves? I guess we can ask with, with Selmy and Jorah, it's, well, Selmy wants Jorah out of the way because he wants to be head, head King Honcho. So that's not that complicated, but, you know, why does Daenerys fixate on ancient history? What about, I mean, another Downton Abbey moment you could talk about uh, in this side of it. If, if the sort of owl that hoots and turns out to be the wildlings coming to kill you is the, uh, the, bu the bugs are dying and they don't know why half of the explanation, then the Downton Abbey moment for the whole, we, are we have this compulsion to seek out and understand uh, through repetition of these things would be Daenerys' talk with Missandei about the penises. Right, where it's like, well, well what happens? Like, didn't you ever really want to know like, what happens when they castrate the Unsullied? Like, do they take all of it? Do they take the pillar and the, and the stones? What right? a great title for the episode, by the way. <laughs> the pillar and the stones? Yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, I, there's a lot of, like, the, the Bear and the Main Fair, the Reigns of Castamere, there's a lot of epithets like that. But yeah, but it's like, well, like, just as much as it's a question of why does it happen for no reason? The other end is, well, why do we feel compelled to try to find a reason for it? And why is history and storytelling so linked to this reason that we're looking for? So one interesting thing that, that Tyrion says about history is he says, far too much has been written about great men and not nearly enough about morons, mm. um, which I think is kind of him trying to grapple with like the nature of what's about to happen because, like, studying the history of great men is not going to help him in his current situation. Because, like, what's about to happen is, like, from a, you know, adjudicative standpoint, from a jurisprudential standpoint, moronic. Like, determined, you know, they say multiple times, like, we're going to ascertain the guilt or innocence of Tyrion by having these two dudes fight. Um, and so I think what he's saying is that he he, he saw, like, a little, a little uh, atom of truth in what was going on here that, like, maybe what... Orson was doing crushing the Beatles can tell us a lot more about history and politics than like the study of Kings and like reading the exploits of the great Kings, because like clearly that's not doing the trick. We, we see again and again that there's all these events that really don't have anything to do with great men or like the sweep of, you know, big events. It's just kind of like morons doing stuff in, in a big in, in a big kind of random sense. And to us, we're the Beatles. We just, we just don't know what's happening to us. So I'm reminded of, in, in this context, I'm reminded, and this is kind of a weird tangent, of uh, Robert Caro's thousand-page uh, biography of Robert Moses, the power broker. Robert Moses being the, the legendary city planner of New York who, between like the late 40s and I think late, uh, late 60s or 70s, is responsible for a lot of the way that uh, a lot of the way that New York looks currently, uh, he, I mean, just a just a handful of things that he did, uh, you know, building like building the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, building uh, uh, Jones Beach and uh, several several of the existing New York City parks, a lot of the bridges and roadways, and 
Caro was inspired to write this biography of Moses, this biography that pretty much turned him from a revered figure to something of a controversial figure, by looking up the history of civic development of New York. And the comment he made to his wife at the time is like, you read all these academic papers about why bridges are built a certain way and why roads are built a certain way, and they go into all these academic theories like, oh, it's to maximize traffic to a certain area, or like, oh, it's to route you know, commuters around certain throughputs, et cetera. And Kara's point was like, but the more I read, the more I realized, no, bridges are built this way because Robert Moses wants it that way. Like that, and that was literally why it happened. And so I suppose in, in the attempt to demolish existing theories, even if you have nothing better to offer in its place, that, that in itself is an academic inquiry worth pursuing. That in its, even if all you're saying is like, no, your ideas don't mean anything, you don't have to come up with a, a countervailing idea. If the best you can say is like, no, this, this trial by combat is no better than an idiot boy smashing the heads of beetles, you don't, you don't have to come up with a better system of justice in its place. You can, you're allowed to say, especially if you're one of the ones about to be smashed, that nope, this is, this is dumb, this is dumb. I can't, I can't affect it in any way. I'm a victim of fate at this point, but I'm allowed to comment on how stupid it is. You're talking about um, Robert Moses and talking about kind of uh, things happening because of the, the fickle choices of specific powerful people, right? So who themselves might be acting in a moronic manner, right? This idea that maybe there isn't so much of a division between great people and morons. Uh, it reminds me of a parallel that comes up in the episode, or it calls to mind a parallel that comes in the episode that I hadn't previously considered. And it's related to something that Blob, that, uh, Blob guy, Robert Frank, just uh, asked us on Twitter, right, which is, you know, why did Tyrion not smash that bug? What's wrong with him? Right, which is one way of phrasing that question. Um, and we can address that in a second, because I feel like that's that's a really important part of Tyrion's speech. It doesn't end with him saying, you know, why does this happen? I have no idea why any of this happens. It ends with him also, like, letting the bug go. And it's an interesting because it, it, it made me think – you mentioning Robert Moses made me think of the letter, the, the pardon parchment that gets delivered to Barristan Selmy and how um, – when I was watching this with my girlfriend who's not a book reader, so you know, I, I, like, I give her more information than she generally asks for about what the show is about, which I think is a common thing for book readers to do for show readers. Show readers. But when she saw the wax seal on the she letter, she said, oh, it's the hand of the king. This is from Tywin Lannister, this letter, right? Because it was the, the wax stamp of the hand of the king was on the parchment, right? And not only was it an indication of Tywin Lannister, it occurs to me that it was a hand going like this. And this hand going like this was, in a very literal way, reaching across the ocean to squash Jorah Mormont and kill him, right? That Jorah Mormont is just this bug. He's he's hundreds, thousands of miles away from King's Landing, and, and he doesn't understand what's happening to him. He has no reason to understand why Tywin Lannister now would turn on him. He probably doesn't even know whether Tywin Lannister is Hand of the King right now. I guess he does, but he was ta talking to Varys before, right? Like, he doesn't get it, and Tywin, you know, the father, he crushes that bug. Um, Tyrion lets the bug go, uh, and, of and of course, like, Tyrion and Tywin being kind of mirrors of each other a little bit uh, in there, both having been Hand of the King during the, the time period we're talking about in the show. I just yeah. thought that that's interesting to think about. It is interesting. They're very much opposite figures. Uh, two things to say on that. First, uh, I, I, was all, I also was pretty sure that uh, Tyrion was going to smash the bug, simply because A, it would make a good capstone to the story, and B, it seemed like a very obvious parallel 
and this may be a stretch, to uh, Stanley Kubrick's 1957 film Paths of Glory, which is about uh, three soldiers who are uh, court-martialed for cowardice in World War I, and there's a scene where they're in, they're in their cell the night before a sentence is going to be carried out, and one of the soldiers you know, is looking at a roach crawling on the ground and says, oh, that, that roach is going to be closer to my wife than I am tomorrow because it'll be alive and I'll be dead. And then one of the other soldiers, as it passes, squishes the roach and says, there, that's one you have up on it. <laughs> so, like, that literally, like, that minimal bit of, like, that minimal, like, however feeble stamp of one's fist against fate, it's like, I'm at least going to outlive this beetle by another day or so. It's, it's, it's a very, it's a very feeble gesture, but one can, one can see a person who's in those terrified circumstances doing something like that. But I guess... Tyrion has that nobility in that he's not even willing to make that pathetic gesture. He's not willing to exhibit that level of cruelty simply to get one up on something in his, his victimized hours. Uh, the other thing that, that actually literally just occurred to me uh, as you were talking, Pete, is that from a, from a tactical perspective, it doesn't make much sense for Tywin to send this note now. Uh, I, I, I don't... I mean, we we never see him we never see him sending it unless it's one of the many papers we always see him signing and like sealing and handing off to people while he's having conversations with one of his children. I mean, that could very well be it. Uh, but what occurred to me just now is that that could have come from someone else, like perhaps Varys. It wouldn't shock me if Varys could forge the seal of the hand of the king, and it wouldn't shock me if Varys has something in mind that requires that. Uh, that either requires that Daenerys have fewer counselors around, or that Jorah Mormont be outside the city of Marine for a bit. Mm-mm. Yeah, and, and to clarify, this isn't how it happens in the books. That's why we're speculating True. about it. Yes. Yeah, it happens. That's why we're, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So we're we're like we're like, what happened? What's going on? Uh, we don't know either. Yeah, yeah, no, no. It's it's interesting. It's um. I, I think it's interesting to think about what Tyrion does to spare the bug in the context of two other things, too. One is when he's talking about how he had a dream, right, that he was standing on a beach and he was surrounded by dead bugs, right? Um, and that, that is an ominous – I feel like that's – in, in, a, in a place where in – a, in a world where Tyrion is often on battlefields – Right, like that's kind of an ominous thing for him to say that he wakes up and he's, you know, he's standing around like a bunch of dead bodies. That happens to him at the Battle of the Ruby, not the the Green Fork. The Battle of the Green Fork was that the one where uh, he got in the show? Yeah, oh, no, 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 the one where he got knocked unconscious. Oh, the first one, yeah. And he, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he and he got knocked unconscious by uh, by Shago where the walls fell or whatever by by the guy who eats feeds the genitals to the goats. And he woke up and everybody was dead. And he's like, wow, all right. And but and so he says that. And also last episode, um, he talked about how much he hated everybody in King's Landing and wanted them all to die. Right? Like and, and he could have say he's try he saved all of them and they all owed him his life and he thought they were all terrible and he wanted them all to die. And there was a sense there, well maybe Tyrion is losing his compassion. Because he's more compassionate than most of the people in the world. You know, he's the one who appreciates good food, good wine, you know, sex, the finer things in life. You know, he's the one who, who is willing to speak up for these things as being just as important as family and honor and all this other stuff that seems to motivate so many people to make these decisions, so many powerful people to make these decisions. He's the one who seems in the show up to this point to have been standing up for life. He's the guy in the Wham! Choose Life t-shirt, right, is Tyrion. And now it's like, I'm going to kill all of you because I hate you because I 
trusted you and I loved you and you betrayed me, right? Like, and it's like, oh, that's a pretty dark side of Tyrion that we're seeing right now. And there's that little bug that's crawling around and Tyrion's having dreams of everybody else being dead and he could squash that bug, but he lets the bug go. There's still that aspect of compassion in Tyrion. And I think that was pretty interesting, definitely. I think it, in addition to showing Tyrion's compassion for the bug, I think he, it's also like a gesture of hope for himself. Because I think the conversation with him and Jamie starts off with Jamie basically saying that, like, it doesn't matter who's fighting the mountain. Nobody can beat the mountain. And Tyrion, like, doesn't believe that. Like, he's like, no, no, he's he's the uh, the Sand Viper. That must mean something. Like, he, he he's, he's going to do... Oh, the Red Viper. The Red, sorry, Sand Viper's next season. Sorry. <laughs> the, the Red Viper, you know, that must mean something. So maybe I have a chance. And so I'm like, I'm going to let this bug go. Because if the bug gets let go, maybe I can get let go, too. So I think there's like a sign of like that there's still like this vestige of hope left in Tyrion. Yeah. Do you think that there was a chance that uh that after killing Oberyn that like the mountain would just squash squash the bug <laughs> that it would like walk out into the, the <laughs> plaza and he'd just be like Mah! But yeah, but Oberyn does look like a squashed bug, right? And it's interesting that the mountain is an inanimate object. I always thought that was interesting in the in the pairing, particularly of the mountain and the hound. Right, uh, where they're that's sort of presented to you as sort of these two ominous nicknames that these two brothers have, but it's not parallel, right? Like the hound is in this vicious animal and he fights, but the mountain is a force of nature who can't be reckoned with. Mountains can't be reasoned with. They just, you know, when they fall on you, they fall on you, and there's nothing that you can do about it. They're immovable, right? Like um, you can try to conquer them, but at the end they're still standing, like that sort of thing, right? Like um, uh, it's interesting. I just I think it's interesting that it's like the viper versus the mountain. Uh, and that's like, okay, that's the storytelling that we tell ourselves, like in the tavern in like five years in some town, if nobody's, if anybody's still alive, someone will be burping the song about the mountain and the viper, right? And like, that'll be like the, the story that comes out of that, that they, they will then be using to contextualize their own existence and try to come to terms with their own uh, inevitable squashitude um, as it were. But let's talk about the big squash, Let's talk about the battle. What did you guys think of the big battle scene that, that sort of comes up real fast at the end of this episode? So one one comment, just initially, like, twirling your spear over your head uses a lot of caloric and muscular energy that could better be used for stabbing people. Like, I, I get that it's a neat display, but, like, a little more this, a little less this, I mean, it, it's, it's going to work wonders. I'm sorry, Oberyn. Yeah, that was total button mashing. I've played my Soul Calibur, and I mean, you think you look fancy when you're doing that, but we know that you won't be able to guard impact when the time comes, definitely. Although they made him look pretty good. They, nobody else in the show has showed off, like, martially to that degree yet, right? Like, even Jamie was like, come on, Ned Stark, let's fight. Because they, like, couldn't afford a good fight choreographer or any wire stunts or anything. Now they can! Awesome! Um, but yeah, it was like, oh, wow, he's like a super-duper badass, you know? Like, this is going to be different. Uh, so I thought it was useful. But yeah, it was foolish. Maybe that's why he drank the wine beforehand, so he could store up the extra calories that he could expend in the, I mean, in the twirling. You, you could argue that the theory is, you know, you need all this extraneous movement so that the mountain doesn't know when the strike is going to come. You know, I mean, he is, he is a viper, so the idea is that, like, he's doing all this stuff, and you don't know what, and then, bam, then the actual spear thrust comes. So he needs all this extraneous movement just to distract the mountain. Because otherwise, it's not going to work. Like, he can't just stab straight at this huge, as you said, immovable object. The only way is to get it to move kind of to, to move and do something stupid. So it's kind of a rope-a-dope, I guess. Mm, that's interesting, yeah. I mean, and I guess, what, the... Uh... 
though the Oberyn having been set up to this point in the show as so in love with life. I mean, we have talked about Tyrion being the big defender of worldly pleasures, but Oberyn like exemplify, although he doesn't have the same, I don't think Oberyn has the same sort of existential relationship with pleasure that Tyrion has because Oberyn takes for granted his own survival for the most part. uh, And does, and whereas Tyrion is sort of, you know, Tyrion has already planned for his death at 80. He's got that all, he's got that all set up. Whereas Oberyn is like, I do not die today. Right, I am the Romeo, and it's like his. It's it's Thanos, Thanatos, and Eros, right? Like uh, the opposition of sex and death in um, Freudian psychology. We talked about a lot of Freud on the podcast last night, so I've still got it on the brain. But this idea that Oberyn stands against death as somebody who is in love and has sex and enjoys pleasure, right, and something like that. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, what do you it, guys, it also it also ties into earlier. Well. I mean, the obvious comparison is with Tyrion's last trial by combat, which was in the Eyrie, and in which the the slow and ponderous but honorable Sir, whose name we don't remember at this point, uh, faces off against Bronn, the casual and kind of slovenly-looking sellsword who fights with just a short blade in one hand and proves himself much more capable because, you know, he's he's quick and he doesn't fight with any particular honor and he fights dirty and he kicks the guy out the moon door at the end. And the, the lesson there is, you know, never never count out the fast guy and never never rely on on fighting with honor. So I think obviously we're we're setting up that sort of expectation here and that, oh, we've got the the quick little guy against the heavy armored guy. It's gonna go down it's gonna we at least have in mind that it could go down the same way. And obviously it doesn't. Yeah, and it's interesting. Oh go ahead, Ben. I'll say one thing that struck me about the scene was um, that it was really playing up the relationship between Tyrion and Jaime, who were kind of like opposite sides of this this Lannister coin, and Oberyn is kind of in between them, and it, so he kind of combines the two things that define those two people, because he has Tyrion's kind of zest for life and sex and wine and drinking and the, the good the good the good life, but he also has Jaime's desire for, you know, martial prowess. So he, he has these kind of two things combined together, and he stands literally in between them. So he, it's interesting, because we have Jamie and Tyrion kind of maneuvering metaphorically in this battle, and then they're personified in Oberyn, who actually carries out their their thing. Not, not quite all the way. He doesn't quite pull it off, but... Hmm. Yeah, I mean, well... So there's a question we would have asked ourselves also, but Dromedary, Brian Lewis, asks us on Twitter, how else could it have gone? I mean, he doesn't specify what. Maybe he means how else could Sansa's conversation with Waymer Royce or with uh, Lord, Lord, Lord Royce have gone. But I think he means the fight at the end. Like, could the fight at the end have gone any other way? It's a loaded question, and what does it even mean, right? But, I mean, I posit that to you guys. Could that fight have gone a different way? I mean, I think narratively, it'd be too easy if the mountain just killed the Red Viper. Mm. Like, because that's the expected result. Like, that, that's what, you know, for, that, that's what happens in 99% of the battles that the mountain fights in is the other guy's dead. And this is set up as the one battle where maybe the mountain will lose. So I think something else had to have happened in, in this episode. Um, so maybe the Red Viper wins just outright. That would be, I think, more conventional storytelling is the Goliath beats David, the good guy gets exonerated, and now Tyrion is, you know, navigating this new world where he's released, but everybody still thinks he killed the king or something like that. Um, yeah. Of course, George R. R. Martin managed to find the, the more bloodthirsty route. <laughs> I will, I mean, partly to, be, partly to be contrarian and partly because I genuinely think this, I will say no, simply because on one side you have arrayed all the 
all the elements of physical and political power in the realm. There's the Lannisters, Cersei and Tywin, who both want Tyrion dead, and everyone sort of recognizes that the Lannisters want him dead. And so to make sure he's dead when it's a trial by combat, they pick literally the biggest, ugliest murderer they have, the Mountain. Like, they go, they they don't even pretend to make it close. It's like, we're going to get a guy who murders prisoners for fun, and we're going to put him against whatever scrub, uh, whatever scrub Tyrion can come up with. So in order to even, to find someone who would plausibly step into the ring in a situation like that, and we have that lovely conversation with Braun in the last episode where he, where he makes clear, you know, hey, ga- game recognize game. You know, you told me I could, I could walk if I had to. So make it clear that you would have to be stupid. You would have to be insanely driven to want to, want to fight the mountain. So you have to have this character who is insanely driven, who wants nothing more than to get in the ring with the mountain and ask him certain pointed questions. So the so the fight has to the fight has to end this way. It has to be between Ober and Martell and the Mountain. There's nothing else that's going to plausibly work with the characters involved. And we know that Oberyn's not going to not going to be satisfied with this fight until he gets a confession out of the Mountain. Like he's not going to say, "Oh well, I killed him. I guess that counts as a moral victory because it's vengeance, kind of ish." Elia, mourn you till I join you. No, he he has to showboat. He has to. He has to get the public confession that he wants, and so the fight can't end until that happens. Uh, so, to Dromedary's point, maybe there's a circumstance in which Oberyn gets the mountain on the brink of death and tortures him in such a way that he spits out Tywin Lannister's name, and then some other stuff happens. I don't know, but... I don't know, it's, it, I guess I'm judging kind of in hindsight, but it seems implausible. Like, the Mountain doesn't seem like a guy who would break under really anything we, that we can mortally bring to bear on him. Well, of course, he, the Mountain does break in the sense that he admits to the crimes. He doesn't spit out Tywin's name, but he admits to the crimes, but it's only out of rage. Like, the only way to get the Mountain to confess is sadism. Like, to... to uh, to get him to the point where he thinks that uh, confessing is causing pain to another person. So, like, the last thing that uh, Oberyn hears is him confessing, yes, I did kill your sister. Um, and so, you know, it's, he gets his confession, but, of course, at the cost of his own life. Yeah, as uh, as we heard, as we got told on the Twitters, as we got told on the Twitters by Paul Pockler, he says, Orson's skull cracking led to his obsession, and Oberyn's obsession led to his skull cracking. Uh, that was, that's, a, that's, a nice little, that's a nice little chiasmatic structure. And Lincoln had a secretary named Shot in the Head, and Kennedy had a secretary named Shot in the Head. Oh, uh, no, sorry. <laughs> that's too dark. I'm sorry, guys. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, gosh. I would just say Valor Morgulis, right? And that's a big, that's a big, uh, big fact of life in Westeros, you know? All, all men must die. Uh, and Oberyn being, though he is, you know, trans, you know, trans curious, bi curious, uh, and bisexual, he's still a dude. Um, I mean, that's all we've got on the questions from the twitters. I, it made me think. It made me think when you're talking about um, the comparing Oberyn and the Mountain to Bronn and the Vale Knight. Uh, it made me think of uh, Theon when he was talking to the Ironborn um, and saying. Oh, you know, my, my, uh, and this is an interesting moment. You know, my father surrendered. He fought with honor, right? And he, and he surrendered and he fought well and it was okay that he bent the knee to Robert Baratheon, right? Um, and I bring it up because 
we know in the show that when they talk about fighting with honor, the, op the brawn has sort of demonstrated why you shouldn't fight with honor because the person who doesn't fight with honor can win. So put, saying that kind of earlier in the episode kind of plants the seed that we might have a brawn kind of fight later on in the show. Um, but just to, to, also, uh, to also kind of take tech, and I know we're, we're running a little short on time, um, but, uh, but uh, I, wanted to, uh, I wanted to say that um, it was interesting that Balon Greyjoy definitely would not have agreed with Theon's summary of events. And there's a lot of events that get summarized uh, in an incorrect way. Um, but you know what? Casting that aside, one thing we haven't addressed at all is the wall and the Night's Watch and the situation in Moletown. I know I mentioned it before with the, with the owl and all that stuff, but um, what do you guys think about that? the other elements of that situation and the approaching wildling army, both Tormund's, Tormund's member and his membership with Egret coming at them from the south and also Mance Raider marching at them from the north? It uh, looks pretty rough. I don't know how they're going to get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, like the, I like that their situation is such that like their best case scenario is that they will not be reanimated as ice zombies. Hopefully somebody will be left alive to burn our bodies so that we don't get reanimated as, like, as zombies. Like That's the best case scenario for them at this point. Go ahead. They, they are also very much people who are laboring under a, an expected sentence of death, hoping for someone to arrive at the last minute and, and hand hope to them. Because, uh, you know, they're, they're an army of executioners steadily working their way towards Castle Black, and, you know, they don't, they don't see a lot of exits at this point. Yeah, well, sadly, we're all out of sexy. There's nobody sexy who can come and save them. Yeah, that's that's one thing that was interesting is like they made Egret into a ruthless killer in this episode. Mm. I mean, like sure she lets uh, um, Gilly live, but like other than that, she's just like stabbing civilians just for the heck of it at this point. So like they're they're working hard to to put Egret on on one side. I think of our um, of our sentiments because they worked so hard in previous seasons to make her. Not necessarily a good guy, but certainly somebody for whom we have a lot of empathy and emotion, and like we we like Egret because she's you know with Jon Snow, and you know he knows nothing, so go Egret. But now she's like a stolen cold killer, just lighting up civilians left and right. Yeah, and I guess the the end of that story is going to be next episode or the culmination, right? Well, the uh, the big culmination, the battle of the marching armies converging, and we can't talk about it now. We have to wait until next week. At least we don't have two weeks to wait. Do you guys have any final thoughts on the mountain and the viper before we put this one to bed? Before we squash its head and leave it to bleed out on the plaza steps? Ben, John, uh, just one completely random observation. But there's the part where he's talking about how big the North is. He's talking about how, like, it's, like, 700 miles here and three. It reminded me of, I saw some graph the other week about, like, how different parts of Texas are, like, further from the other parts of Texas than they are to, like, Cuba or California. So I've decided that the north is just the Texas of Westeros. Like, it's never fully integrated into the Seven Kingdoms. It's kind of doing its own thing. It would secede if it thought it could get away with it. It's yep. very large. So, yeah. The North is the Texas of West. There's a, there's a very weird, there's a very weird hunting culture deeply ingrained in the in the in the North. 
Uh, a lot of political parties want to build a big wall to keep out the Adam Sangs. I just can't wait for the adventures of White Walker, Texas Ranger. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and on that, I think we're going to bring this episode shambling to its close. This has been the biggest live audience that we've had on YouTube watching the show. Thank you guys very much. I know you must have been really energized by this episode. We were too. Hopefully, we talked enough about the head squishing, uh, and and of course, and the King Learitude and the brutality and the sweetness and sadness of the sublimity of the end of life and in all its glory to satisfy the hungry needs of our audience. Uh, but we're glad that you're here. And if you want more, uh, well, you know, subscribe to this, subscribe to our regular podcast, subscribe to the TFT podcast, check out our videos. We have lots of cool uh, articles and infographics and other cool stuff at our home site. And where is that, might you ask? Well, it is www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. Guys, I'm I'm gonna tell you, I'm I'm really tired. I'm gonna John John Ben You got a mop?